With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast, the best Phillies podcast out there for you. Uh, I'm Anthony Sanfilippo, your co-host at AntSanPhilly on Twitter, joined as always by Bob Wankel, Crossing Broads, Phillies writer at BW Crossing Broad on Twitter. Bob, Phillies start a big series tonight. This is Monday night we're recording on. Um, start a big series with the Braves. Everybody's talking about it. It's the fourth time they're, they're playing them already this year. It's kind of a battle for first place in, in late May because, you know, that's the most important time of year for a battle for first place. And they come away with a 3 nothing victory. It's a solid win, um, buoyed by yet another strong start by our guy, who our we've guy. been on since the beginning of the year, Nick Pavetta. Seven strong innings, shutout ball. And I think it's the, the stat is now, Bob, in his last three starts – He's gone 19 and two-thirds innings, allowed one run, only 10 hits and two walks, and 25 strikeouts. He was awesome tonight. Uh, It didn't look like he was going to get out of the third inning, you know, third, fourth inning. It looked like it was going to be a very short start for him tonight. His pitch count was way up early in the game, and he just settled down in the middle innings, and then you, you look up, and 107 pitches, seven shutout innings. Uh, in a in a big series, and I know, and, and you kind of alluded to it just a, a minute ago there, that it's the end of May. It's not that big of a deal, you know. But but to me, it is. And I wrote about this today on the website on Crossing Broad. Uh, I look at this series and I say, you've lost three series to this team. You're three and six against them. You came into this this series eight and fourteen against the NL East, and I know that you're beating the brains out of everybody outside of the division. But I do think that, that this was a little bit of a statement. A statement win, and this is a statement series for the Phillies. And to me, I think you could make the point that this is the most important series they've played at home since the 2011 series. Or I'm sorry, the 2011 season. And and, and maybe that's hyperbole. Maybe I'm getting carried away, but uh, or maybe I'm just so starved for for relevant baseball in this city uh, that that maybe I'm reaching. But I really truly feel like that this is a a big series. And if this team's going to hang around and and do what we think they're capable of and you and I both agree that th- this team's going to hang around you know throughout the summer and into into really September and into October they need to show up in this series and not get beat by the Braves for a fourth time yeah you're not wrong I mean it, it does have uh, value this series um, and I'm not even looking at it from a perspective of where they sit in the standings but I think it has value for them as far as where they fall in the uh, eye of the Philadelphia sports fan. Because if they win this series, you know, they either sweep and f- are in first place at the end of the series or take two out of three or within a half game, have a lot of momentum, I, I think then that it's an opportunity for everybody to now get on board. You know, like, hey, you know what? We have a legit team in, in town. 
Um, you know, th- this team's going to be part of this race all year long, like we've been saying since since the preseason. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I think there are some people who needed to, you know, they were a little bit of doubting Thomases, and they were like, show me. And the Phillies are now starting to show it. However, if they would have lost two out of three or gotten swept by the Braves and be the fourth time that they lost to them, and they're still, I mean, even though they wouldn't have been out of the race, they'd still been like two and a half or three and a half games out or whatever the case might be. I think that people would have just been like, eh, eh, it's just another series. You know what I'm saying? So I think that, I think that for the, the sports conscious of the city, it's good for the Phillies to win this series because I think then it makes them relevant as you move into June, as opposed to them still just being an interesting sidebar, but let's get OTA started with the Eagles and talk about defending the, the Super Bowl championship. You know what I'm saying? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this this Braves team's good, too, by the way. Like, at, at the end of April, when they were in here and they won two out of three against the Phillies, I said, you know, the Phillies really have to start taking care of business against teams like the Braves. You know, it, you can't be messing around with these guys. This is the type of team that you should be padding your wins against. Well, you know, you fast forward three weeks, and this Braves team's legit. I mean, offensively, they are they are probably across the board the best team in the National League in terms of offense. And the starting pitching's been very good. Uh, you know, uh, Julio Teheran has been good. Uh, Fulton Avage has been good. Newcomb's been great. Um, this is a, a, a legitimate team, and I actually think that they, too, are going to hang around throughout the summer. And so... It really isn't about the standings, like you said. I mean, the Phillies sit after tonight's 3 nothing win, a half game out of first place. I'm not really interested in that. But when you look at how they've struggled against the division, how they've struggled against this team in particular, you know, this to me, I don't know how the rest of this series plays out. Maybe they lose two out of three. But getting this win tonight, 3 nothing, they do just enough. You get the home runs from Williams and Altair, uh, and, and you get the performance that you got out of Pavetta. I just feel I feel pretty good right now. And, you know, especially coming off a split in St. Louis, which is which is really nothing to sneeze at either. I mean, I really like how the Phillies are playing right now, and, and they're not surprising me at this point. I think we go back to a couple weeks ago. I would tell you that I would have expected this. I, I truly honestly would have. But, um, you know, they need to take care of business in this series. They have to win this series. And I think not just from getting the, the fans involved and, and really getting the city, you know, on board with what they've done thus far, but I think for themselves, I mean, they're a young team, and I, I know they've struggled a little bit here against this particular squad, and I think they need to prove to themselves, yeah, we can play with these guys. We're better than them. And yeah, and I think, I think it's, to be honest with you, Bob, I think they're starting to be noticed nationally a little bit. I don't ever put a lot of stock into power rankings. Like I just, it's just a bunch of goofball journalists. Did you see ESPN's power? Rankings well, that's what I'm today. saying. Yeah. That's what I was going to talk about. Is that ESPN put out their power rankings, and they have three NL East teams in the top seven, which is pretty incredible considering the American League. You got the Yankees, you got the uh, Red Sox, you got the Astros, you got the Indians, and then you got you know it's the, the uh, Braves. They had at four. They had the Cubs at five, which I still thought was interesting. Um, the Nationals at six, and the Phillies at seven. Seven, yeah. Seventh in the in baseball. I mean, you know, so if they're starting, if people from around the country are starting to look at this team and say they're legit, then guess what, folks? They're legit. I mean, it's not, you know, like I said, I mean, it's you don't put a lot of necessarily stock into the rankings themselves, but if people are sitting there recognizing that they're a good team then maybe they are. And it's not just – I mean, the starting pitching has been so, so good. We've talked about it ad nauseum on, on this podcast. Um, but they're starting to get uh, help from other places that they weren't getting it, um, even when they were winning against some weaker teams earlier in the season. And I think that's a good sign. And one of the places we got to look at 
is the eighth inning because the eighth inning of late has belonged to one person and one person only, and it's Sir Anthony. Sir Anthony Dominguez <laughs> has been – I know, right? he's my namesake uh, – has been – He's been fantastic. He gave up his first hit in seven innings tonight and still had a scoreless inning. He's been untouchable in that eighth inning role and ultimately might end up becoming the closer before the end of the season. But okay, let's just talk about coming out of where he came from because he really came out of, out of nowhere. He rose quickly through the minor league system, and he went from being a starter to a reliever and real quickly made it to the majors, and he's, he's just mowing people down. Yeah, I mean, seven and two-thirds innings, one hit, first hit allowed tonight, no walks, uh, a .13 whip. I don't know that that's sustainable, but he's been awesome. I mean, he has four holds, he has a save, the two-inning save in St. Louis over the weekend. Uh, he's been a revelation for them, and when you consider what this bullpen has been, and, and I know that you're not re- you're not very high on this bullpen, right? I mean, we, we talked about this no. a little bit last week, and you know, Tommy, Tommy Hunter's been, he's been rough, you know, he's, he's struggled a little bit. Um, Hector Naris has been up and down I know he had the the save tonight um it's been he's been a huge stabilizing force for this team since since he's arrived and I mean he's throwing 97 98 miles an hour and he's he's got electric stuff and you know I don't know how you utilize him I don't know if he becomes your closer I don't know if you just use him in high leverage situations but he's been he's been a godsend for this team and and a big reason why they've kind of sustained their success here in the early going yeah, I mean, because other than uh, when you really look at what the bullpen was before Dominguez got here, you mentioned Tommy Hunter, who struggled. Um, Naris was struggling. Garcia and Ramos were okay. I mean, you know, Garcia was probably a little bit better than okay. I'm probably being a little too hard there. But I mean, I mean he's done a great job stranding runners, right? Yeah, I mean, he, it, he, it seems like every time he enters the game with you know one or two guys on, those guys are staying on base. They they don't get knocked in. So yeah, he, and he actually gave up his first stranded yeah. inherited runner uh, scored uh, against St. Louis, right? I think mm-hmm. that was the first one all season. Um, so he's actually been better than that. And Ramos has had has had some moments, but other than that, the, the bullpen has been piecemeal it has been I, I, I'm not a big fan of how it's being utilized but that's a whole nother discussion um, it, so it's nice to get another player uh, in that bullpen who you can look at and say I have confidence and it's crazy to sit here and say after seven and two-thirds major league innings that I have confidence in a, in a, a kid to go out there in a high leverage situation and mow down, mow you know, mow through the middle of the best offensive lineup in baseball right now, or National League right now, in in the Braves, and in what he did this, like he did tonight, in the middle of the Braves order. I mean, Naris came in and got the save in the ninth, but he went up against the, the you know the bottom three guys in that lineup. Uh, Dominguez went up against the Braves' better hitters and and got out of it, and that's that's impressive for a kid who's just getting up here and, and just doing his thing right now. Yeah, and really, he's kind of just relied on the fastball. Entering to tonight, uh, 71.3% of his pitches have been fastballs. He's averaging 97.8 miles per hour on, on his fastballs. His four-seamer is actually averaging 98.7 miles an hour. Uh, he's throwing a sinker at plus 98 miles an hour right now. Uh, and he's kind of just been he's been fastball. He's really kind of been fastball slider for the most part. Uh, he's mixed in a couple sinkers and a couple change-ups. But he's really just kind of come into these games and said, like, here it is, hit it. And, and to this point, through, you know – 
almost eight full innings, nobody has. Uh, and, you know, I, I love the aggressiveness. That's one thing that I hate out of relief pitchers when they come in and they nibble and, you know, they're, they're kind of afraid to attack. And right now this guy's confident, and uh, I think that he feels almost untouchable. And, and certainly he's not, and uh, he won't be uh, as, as we progress here. But right now I love the way that the guy's pitching. He's, he's you know, just the confidence that he's exuded to this point has been it's, – it's been impressive. Yeah, and and another guy who's really looked a lot more confident in the last couple of weeks, um, mostly at the plate, uh, but really also as we're seeing him defensively as well, it's Jorge Alfaro, who's kind of taken this starting catching job and run with it, which was interesting because Kapler said at the beginning of the year that he planned on using Alfaro and Knapp almost in like a 50-50 split, um, which I thought was kind of ridiculous because I was never – big on Andrew Knapp as anything more than what he is as a backup catcher. Um, but it's nice to see Alfaro, after a terrible start, kind of turn it around. And now he's batting in the middle of the order. He's hitting the ball the other way. When he drives the ball, he's got – that the ball flies off his bat. And, he, and no one, I think it's a very underrated thing about him, for a catcher especially. Boy, does he hustle. Boy, does he get down the line and get between you get from one bag to another and really forces the defense to make a play. I mean, I think it was a, it was at the first game of the Cardinal series where they try to get the force at second and he beat it. He beat the throw on the, the pitcher tried to throw to second, and and Alfaro beat the throw to second. I mean, it's just simple things like that. And then on top of the matter, I mean, he's got a gun. Uh, I think uh, Statcast. Uh, found that he has the strongest arm of any catcher in Major League Baseball so far this year. Yeah, it's dating fo- back to uh, 2015, right? Yeah, that, 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 uh, throw down to second base, the average yeah. velocity is the highest. He's actually got the hardest throw down to second base. Yeah. Um, I never really understood the Andrew Knapp thing. And like, what I don't want to do on this show is is react to a bad start or you know, a a small sample size, if you will, and say, this guy can't play, he stinks. But, I mean, I I really never understood the upside with Knapp. I mean, Alfaro, the the ceiling on him is so significantly higher, right? And, I mean, Knapp comes in and he's he's hitting 161. He's got 10 hits and 62 at-bats so far. No home runs, only three RBIs. Uh, The 461 OPS, I mean, he's not a... He's not a major league catcher. I mean, at, th- at this point, like you're you're talking about Cameron Rupp probably providing more value than than Knapp has to this point. And and if if Cameron Rupp is a, a better option than than Knapp, that's that's a problem. I, I think that you and I would probably both agree with that. Yeah. And you know, you, what you look with, with Jorge Alfaro, you know, you see the power and you see these these glimpses of just this this talent and you go what could this guy become and I mean just even forget the offensive stuff for a standpoint uh, I'm sorry forget the offensive stuff for, for just a minute and you look at his defense and you just see the arm right and you see the athleticism and you go this guy has to this guy has to start 110 games for you right I mean this has to be the guy that that you kind of rely upon and if I'm an advanced scout, I'm saying to my guys, we're not running in this series. I mean, if you look at his arm, I can't believe that teams are still attempting steals against him at this point. I mean, these throws have been outrageous. He's throwing the ball down to second base at like 91, 92 miles an hour. Guys are getting good jumps because Philly's pitchers are actually pretty slow to the plate by and large. And I mean, it doesn't even matter. These guys are dead out, you know, and, and these throws have just been outrageous. If you know, the middle infielders catch the baseball and apply the tag and hold on to it. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to that don't in go, a second, Don't go though. negative. Don't go negative <laughs> Stick yet. Stick around for that. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but you're right, and and it's a good thing because you know we were we were starting to worry. I mean, we talked. I don't know if it was the third or fourth podcast when uh, we looked at the Phillies catching numbers, and they were not impressive either guy, either Alfaro or Knapp at that point. Um, and we looked down in the minor leagues and said. Geez, they got nothing. I mean, they don't even have like a veteran, yeah. like a veteran in the minors who you can bring up and say, okay, yeah, you know, get in there. Um, so like, it was, it was a boy. Somebody better take this and figure it out. Um, and luckily, so far in the in, in the last you know f- three weeks or so, Al, it seems like Alfaro has figured it out. And, yeah, I mean, and, the OPS is is climbed towards yeah. seven hundred now after just an absolutely terrible start. Uh, the, the thing that you have to kind of look at with him, though, and you go, okay, we'll pump the brakes. Uh, entering tonight, he had 45 strikeouts in 102 at-bats. I mean, so he's striking out almost half the time that he gets in the batter's box, which is obviously yeah. a problem. But, I mean, you see the power, and, and you see that the average is certainly starting to climb. The OPS is starting to climb, and, and you know, You can live with that. Like I I can live with what he does for you defensively. I can live with those strikeouts when you combine his his defensive acumen with what he's 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 starting to do offensively. I mean, things are starting to click a little bit, even with the strikeouts there. I'm going to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. If he's chooch, are you good with that? (laughs) That's tough, man. So I guess I mean let's unpack that for a second. So like. If Carlos Ruiz was playing on teams that didn't have the success that those teams did from 2007 to 2011, would we, would we love him? Or was he just a product of – was he just kind of along for the ride? Uh, I don't want to go like hot take on you here with, with Chooch, <laughs> but like I know that Roy Halladay loved him. He obviously is the owner of, of many significant moments in Philly's history and recent history. He, he was awesome in the postseason. So, I mean, if – if Alfaro kind of rises to the occasion like like Chooch did in the postseason, great. But I don't know. Like in and of itself, is is that enough, or was it more just that? Well, he happened to play really well when it mattered most. You know, well, I mean, so. he was a, he was a decent. He was not a, obviously was not a great offensive player, but he was he was adequate as an as a hitter, and he was excellent as a defensive catcher. Called a great game. I mean, you know, the guy has caught more no hitters than any other catcher. In, sure. In, Baseball history tied with Jason Veritek. Um, I mean, so, I mean, he, but, you know, I think Chooch was lovable, um, you know, all stemmed from the nickname that Manuel gave him. Um, and he was, you're right, he was, in a lot of ways, he was along for the ride because he was the, you know, he wasn't the guy. I and, mean, like, I love him, and, and I like, actually kind of feel a little bit guilty just saying that, right? Yeah. Like, I, no, I feel like, good. oh, man, like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I get it. Dirty his name. No, uh, I get it. I get it, but the question the, the the question though is is if Alfaro turns into that and becomes a reliable defensive catcher with that great gun, um, who pitchers really like and becomes a real likable player. I mean, obviously he's a hustle, he hustles and he's he is likable in that in that sense. He's going to be the the you know the lunch pail kind of guy in this city, and provides just decent offense. Is that enough? Or does do, do we need him to be more? That's the, so that's that's kind of where I'm going with this question. I don't think they need him to be more, and I think that that would be enough if he becomes Carlos Ruiz. I, I think that that's fair. However, I I look at these throws and I I just see more upside with him. I don't know if you agree with me on that. We haven't talked about this coming in. I, I just I guess I see in the way that I kind of project him out. I see more power. Uh, I, I I certainly see more of a ceiling in terms of power. I see more of a ceiling in terms of his 
of, of his arm. Uh, you know, I don't know that he's going to be the receiver that Ruiz was. I don't know that if he's that he's going to to earn the trust of his starting staff the way that Carlos Ruiz did. Uh, I don't know that he's going to own big moments the way that Carlos Ruiz did. But uh, from raw tools, physical tools, I think that he's he's probably more gifted than Chooch was. Uh, you know, so I mean, if he becomes Carlos Ruiz, I, I think I would settle for that. If you if you made me sign off on that right now, I'd say sure, let's do it. But I do see maybe a little bit more room for, you know, a higher ceiling here. Sure. Absolutely. There is definitely room for a higher ceiling. So let's, let's, let's put it this way. He becomes a little bit better offensively than Chooch and probably a little bit less defensively than Chooch. And that's okay. Yeah, I think that that's, that's – the Phillies would be, you know, in good shape if that were the case for sure. Yeah. Um, one, th- one player who's currently not in good shape, and I hate yeah, to say it, but I'm going I'm to throw it out there – because, I mean, I'm seeing it with my eyes. And I'm, you know me, I'm an eyes guy. And, and you're going to give me all the details. You're going to give me all the numbers because you're the numbers guy. And that's good. It's, it's, it's what makes I love that work. I've become the numbers guy. Because, like, I'm the guy that, like, actually has, like, seven Miller lights and, like, throws things around the room and just says, this sucks, you know. And now I've become the numbers guy. So. Well, you know, why, you know why it works? Because, because I'm just too damn lazy to look it up and you spend all the time doing the research. Well, well because, like, if, if it's we're going to talk about Scott Kangaroo here and <laughs> – and you watch him and you just go, what the hell is going on? You know, like all you heard about was how advanced he was at the plate and how he could play anywhere. And his athleticism would lend itself to him being this, this super utility guy and that he could definitely take on and, and manage this role. And if you watch the games night in, night out, you go, he's not ready, right? I mean, right. He's just, he doesn't look like he's ready. And so I started digging around, and I went into the numbers. But before I guess we we start going into all of that, I mean, what, what is your overall impression? And we'll just see if we align on this because again, we we haven't really talked about him in great detail. But uh, it, it certainly hasn't been good. No, my impression is is that Scott Kingry is going to ultimately long term be fine. I'm perfectly still comfortable with the contract that they signed him to. I think he's going to be a good player for the Phillies. Do you think he's going to be the next Dustin Pedroia, as that one scout uh, famously said earlier in the spring? I don't know. Does Dustin Pedroia play second base? Where does Scott Kingery play? Not second base. uh, He plays second base. He plays shortstop. He plays third, left, out, and center I think he's played second base less than any other position this year. I believe Uh, that's true, uh, other than center field. Other than uh, center field, which he only had I think he's only played 21 innings uh, entering tonight at second base so yeah you know, so, I mean, that, there at all that's my that's my issue with you know comparing him to Pedroia because we don't know I mean ultimately I think it's probably his best position and he's not even playing there so I think that what's happening is is that the Phillies are, are trying to sell us this bill of goods that Scott Kingry can play you know can be Ben Zobrist and play six positions um, when he really can't and he struggles everywhere else he struggles at shortstop he struggles at third base he's he's not great in the outfield I guess he's passable in 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 left field because left field who needs to be really good defensively in left field unless you're Brett Gardner or whoever but um well if you uh, believe in UZR which we'll get to in a second I I don't totally I don't completely believe in it but that's actually the only position this year that he's played at an above average level is left field um, in the infield, he's been below average at all three spots. Uh, you know, I know it's been limited action, but it's it's kind of interesting when you really dive into it. Yeah, and so I, I think that's a, that is affecting him as a hitter because you're asking a young player to now play a bunch of positions that he's never really played before. I mean, other than here or there, um, at the major league level, 
and then you're going to expect him to still be, you know, figure out uh, major league pitching while he's at it? I mean, it's just, a, it's, I think it's a lot to put on him. I, I totally so I, agree with you, but I guess my question is this. T- to what extent can you excuse away his offensive struggles because of what they've asked him to do defensively? I, I mean, like, so this kind of goes back to our argument about where you hit in the lineup, right? And I told you, you know, about a month ago, you get into the batter's box, and it's an 0-2 count, and you know what the pitcher does, and you know what his tendencies are, and it's still going to be an 87-mile-an-hour slider away in the strike zone, what does it matter if you played second base earlier in the night or if you played left field earlier in the night? So, like, I agree that they've kind of put him in a tough spot, and I think that they probably gave him more than he really could handle early in the season, and I think, obviously, his confidence has been shaken to this point, and I think that he's certainly uncomfortable, and he's trying to adapt to the major league level as he's also trying to, you know— play four, five, six different positions. And and no doubt, I think human nature suggests that he will naturally struggle because of that. But at what point do you say, well, this guy's hitting around 215 right now. It doesn't matter where he plays. He just isn't, he's just not getting it done against major league level pitching. Yeah. So I think, I think if you put it in a vacuum, that what you're saying about it doesn't matter, it's O2, you're, you know, you know what it's going to, it doesn't matter where you're playing in the field or where you're batting in the lineup. Yeah, within a, in a vacuum, you're right. It doesn't because the, the, the goal of, of a hitter is to get in there and know what, you, you know, know what the pitcher's going to throw you and know how to attack him in, in a certain way and, and, and try your best to, you know, get a hit by not, Falling for that pitch that's out of the strike zone that you're going to dive for and swing and miss, or you know, getting yourself jammed on a pitch inside and you know that should be coming, or whatever the case might be. So yes, within a vacuum, I think that you're 100 percent correct. However, and I, I think this is, and we've had this discussion before, uh, just in general, um, and I, and this go, this goes across all sports. A lot of times we don't really know like what a, a player's mental case mental situation is uh, i'm not saying that he's a mental case i didn't that, that word snuck out that it, it should not have snuck out there i'm not saying that by any stretch of the imagination um well to but, me he looks like a guy that's in his own head and and i know there's, there's so many different layers of this that we need to unpack and i guess we're yeah we're trying to try to slant more offensively first right. but he he certainly looks like a guy that's rattled to me right now whether yeah, that's and, fair and, or not and and that's fine, and you know, and that's to me that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to always be that way. I just think that he's a young kid who had great expectations because he made the team coming out of spring training, got that contract, and everybody's like, "All right, Scott, now you're going to be this five position player, and you're going to be this multi million dollar player who's going to carry the Phillies for the next decade and go at it." And it's you know, it, it, going into spring training, he was probably like. All right, well, I'm probably going to be sent back down to AAA and I'll get the call up later in the year. I mean, that's a lot to ask a guy, you know, and and to expect from a guy to handle really well, especially in a major media market like Philadelphia. If you're doing this in a, you know, uh, in Kansas City, uh, yeah, it probably goes a little bit, you know, not, not as not as noticed as much, right? But you're doing it here where the spotlight is harsher. It's tough. It's tough for anybody to handle. And so I think that you have the combination of all of these things put together. The fact that he's struggling at the plate, the fact that he's got the contract, the fact that he's playing all these positions he's never played before, and he's pretty much playing every day because J.P. Crawford's hurt and they don't really have another shortstop at this point. This is what's this is what's what's happening, and the Phillies are in a tough spot now because the ideal thing at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, 
would be to say, you know what, go back down to AAA, figure it out, and then we'll bring you back up in a month. Absolutely. Yeah, no, they can't they they can't can't do do that. that. And even when JP Crawford comes back, I don't know that they can do that. I mean, the reason that Scott Kangary is bouncing all over the diamond right now is because they they kind of need a guy to do that. I mean, this is not a complete offense. I think that they felt, well, we we have some some weaknesses across the board here, but a guy like Scott Kangary, he could come up and hit 280, 290 for us right away, and he's gonna kind of patch this hole, patch that hole. And I think that they truly honestly, when they when they look at their plan and the way that they devised this template offensively for this season I truly think you know within the first week or two of spring training they said this guy's going to play a big part in this not just that well you know if he plays well great I mean I think they really looked at him and said he's going to be a big part of our success if we have it offensively and you know now I mean the the fix is not just J.P. Crawford coming off the DL and playing shortstop on a daily basis that's not going to fix what ails the Phillies you know in terms of offense and I I think that this was the role they really had hoped he could play and so I don't know even when Crawford comes back if they're just going to ship him down to Lehigh Valley and let him figure it out that's what I'm kind of interested to see at this point yeah I don't think they will either because he's he's got this contract all right, they don't want to. They don't want to be. Do you think? Do, do you think that the Phillies would say like this is an admission of a mistake if we sent him down? I mean, to what extent does the contract really truly play in? I mean, you could still have that contract, go down to Lehigh Valley, rip it up in the month of June, be back by the fourth of July, and kick an ass the second half of the season. I mean, would that really? Would that really matter? Um, it, no. In, in the grand scheme of things, no, it wouldn't matter. You're, you're. But again, you forget where we live. And and everybody everybody in this town is so short sighted. Well, I don't forget where we live because I'm that guy that is typically short sighted. You know, if you watch my Twitter feed over the last four or five days, you'll say like, "Oh wow, he's really starting to turn on Scott Kinger." I thought he you loved know, him. You know what the funny thing is? I I watch you on Twitter. I uh, I'm read, nuts. I, I you can read see those, you, those, the, the glimpses of my insanity. I through. read you on Crossing Broad. And then I say to myself, the guy that I talk to every week on this podcast is a completely different person than either of those caricatures of himself that he puts out there as a writer or as, as someone on social media. Yeah, I think because I'm just you're... schizophrenic, honestly. I think that's really what this comes down to. You know? The guy that you talk somebody... to here, you're like, this guy's kind of weird. He's like a little bit out there, but he's he's pretty reasonable. And then yes, you read me, reasonable. And then you read me, and you're like, he's pretty positive, and he, he seems kind of optimistic about what the Phillies are doing. If, if somebody messes up, he kind of he'll rail on them a little bit. But for the most part, yeah. Pretty positive outlook. And then you like look at me on Twitter and you're like, oh, this guy needs to take a breath, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's three different people. Uh, yes, it, it absolutely is. I'm aware of that. Uh, I'm, I cannot help it and uh, I'm not going to change it. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's good. No, I, and, and then defensively, I mean, we, one of the things that we talked about, let's just talk about some individual yeah, plays. All right. I mean, you know, in the Cardinal series alone, he had three just terrible plays. And things, you know, things that he should just that are common sense, not necessarily. Oh, I don't play this position, you know. He, yeah, okay, he's not a shortstop, but when you're covering the bag at second on somebody stealing, guess what? Second basemen do that too. And Alfaro makes a perfect throw, and Dexter Fowler's sliding into where your glove should be, and you can't figure out where his body is, and you completely miss him on the tag. That can't happen. Yeah, at it, all. It, it, Let's just kind of like walk through this. Like you said, I I dug up all the numbers, right? 
I just took his his sample from AAA last season and compared it to what he's done at the start of this season. And the OPS dropped from 786 to 598 entering tonight, right? The line drive percentage is down from 23% to 18%. He's hitting way more fly balls, but he's not hitting them over the fence with the same amount of frequency. One home run every 21 at-bats a year ago. This year he's hitting one home run every 65 at-bats. The pop hasn't been there. He's had a negative value offensively against every type of pitch except the curveball. We, we look at him, we go, he's a super utility guy. He can play second, short, third. He can play all the outfield positions. Great. Well, check this out. He's only made four total errors this season. He's made one at second base. He's played 21 innings there, and he's made three at third base. So follow me on this. 21 innings at second base. He's got a negative .2 UZR. All right, which is a common metric used for defensive performance. It's a little bit flawed, but it kind of gives you a general idea of how a guy's performing in a certain position. At third base, he's played 73 and a third innings entering tonight, negative .2 UZR. At shortstop, 134 innings, negative .5 UZR. So, I mean, in all three infield positions, he's played – below average defense and things like you said I mean guys trying to swipe bags he's not even getting tags down right now he doesn't you know yesterday on Sunday he didn't put the tag down on Dexter Fowler and then tonight they had uh, Jorge Alfaro made a, a beautiful throw to second base and the ball comes out he has Freddie Freeman out by three feet and the ball comes out on the slide and you just go this is a play that a middle infielder should make is he not in middle infielder and, and and so it's it's been difficult and he killed them in that Cardinals series as well and, and and I'll tell you another time it happens frequently whenever that shift is on and they had a, and I you know how much I hate the shift uh, you love the first. shifts man you're gonna come around on this I don't mind the shift when nobody's on base but I hate the shift when you have a runner at first and and then the runner's trying to steal how many times has Kingry and Franco run into each other at second base trying to figure out who's going to catch who's going to catch the throw? Yeah. I mean, somebody's got to know. And look, Franco never covers second, right? So I don't know. Is that is that his ball? I mean, he is closest to the bag, but Kingry's Kingry's like a, a whirling dervish out there. He's just he's causing more issues than than he's worth, I think at this point. Let me let me just walk you through a couple situations that happened in St. Louis, and I'm going to kind of give you my take on this. So Friday night, it's the third inning, and uh, Jake Arrieta's on the mound. The Phillies are down 2 nothing. He had given up a couple runs early. Uh, there are two outs, and Marcelo Zuna hits a ground ball to Kingery, right? He makes a bad throw, um, puts runners on second and third. The next batter comes up, hits a two-run single. They got Waka on the mound. Arietta's out of the game after three. They're down big early. They had the rain delay, and I think the Phillies just wanted to kind of be cautious with it. So he's out of the game, and then the game gets out of hand. Phillies lose. I believe the final score on Friday night was 12-4, to if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Saturday, right? Uh, Tommy Pham comes up in the seventh, and he leads off with a ground ball. It slowly hit the third base. Kingery comes up through it, and he makes a bad error. Uh, you know, makes a bad throw to first base. It scored an error. It's a hit and an error, but really, if he made a good throw, uh, Fams out at first base uh, to, to lead off the inning, and instead he he go, scores the go-ahead run, makes it six-five. Uh, Carpenter comes up the next at bat, doubles. They take the lead. Now, to his credit, he obviously hits the game-tying triple, and he later scores on the Jorge Alfaro infield single, and that's all fine and well. And he got to be the hero. But you go like, dude, that's that's a play that a, a major league third baseman makes. Every time, 10 out of 10 times, not 9 out of 10, but every single time. And, and you watch him for the second straight game make a bad throw from third, and you go, this guy's killing him. And then you have the Fowler play yesterday. It was 3-1. to one. He steals second base. He's 
dead out at second. It was one of those ones where you're you're watching it and your eyes are like, wait, he's he's safe. How is that possible? And then you watch it on replay and you go, how did he miss that tag? And Colton Wong comes up, uh, bunts him over to third, uh, and then they hit a sack fly and they're up four one, and, and the game was over. Especially the way they were swinging the bat. So I mean, the, the Phillies are not good enough offensively to make up and mask those types of mistakes game in, game out. And and this weekend, it, it came back and hurt them. And you just start to wonder when you look at the offensive struggles combined now with the defensive struggles on fundamental type plays, you go, is this a guy that's just not ready? Is he mentally overwhelmed? What is it? And I'll just right. tell you what my take is. I, I think that, that, honestly, the guy's a good baseball player. I think that he has the athleticism, and I think he has the mental wherewithal to be a very good Major League Baseball player. I think that he probably has not struggled to this extent in his, his recent baseball career. And I think the guy just has his head so far up his rear end right now that the game is just played three times faster than, than he's able to process it. He looks like a guy that is overwhelmed by what's happening in front of him right now. And I think he's going to be a really good player, and I don't want to kill him, and I don't want to bury him, and I don't want to be the guy that, well, you hated Scott Kingery. I heard what you said on that podcast that one time. I think the guy's going to be really good. But right now, I think he's got to go down. I think he's got to go down for four or five weeks and, and get his shit together. I, I don't disagree with you, but I don't think that the Phillies are going to do it. I, I, if they do, good for them because they surprised me. But I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I think that the Phillies are, are so caught up in having him here at this point that they don't really have a choice. And especially with the way that they've kind of put this together. And I know you can sit there but, and say, well, but, uh, you know, hold on, hold on, hold back, on, hold on, hold on. You can keep Valentin on the bench, whatever. Right? It's, so it's, so they're, they're 27 and 18. They're a half game out of first, and that's all fine and well. And I'm all aboard that train. We've talked, and you know. I'm like, hey, playoffs now. Let's go. But the, the thing that, that is most important is that they develop their young guys, right? So yeah. is what he's doing right now – the best thing for his development because you know what it's not helping them win games so let's just even remove that from the equation I feel like right now they're they're stunting his growth by leaving him up here Mm -hmm. and I just think that that's what needs to take you know that's what needs to be the the primary focus that needs to be the primary goal is that he develops as a player and right now I'm starting to question or are we starting to maybe get into the territory where he struggles so badly that it's going to have, you know, irreversible harm on his long-term development. Preach, Bob. I Preach. Mean, is, is that I agree not with where you. we're possibly at? I mean, we talk I, about starting quarterbacks getting thrown into the fire too soon, right? Yeah. And, no. and it ruins them. Hey, there's just no bouncing back from it for a no. lot of these guys. I mean, is that where we're going now with Scott Kingery? Yeah, it could well be. And I, I agree with you. He needs to go back down to the minors. The fact that he hasn't already tells me that they're hesitant to do it. And, and for whatever reason, and I think it's probably justified by the fact that they gave him this big contract and let him make the team out of spring training, and they're trying him all over the field, and it's, and it by, it, it's almost like an admission that we were wrong, he's not ready yet. But sometimes you take that and so you sit there and say, you know what, he just needs 
You don't have to say you're wrong. Just say, you know what? He just needs a, a, a clear his head a little bit. We'll get him back up here. And because you know it, what? I, let it go. You know what I see with him? I see this guy that's going to be like this 280, 290 hitter that works counts, and he always does the right thing. And he has a little pop. Maybe he hits 20, 25 home runs. I, I don't know. You know, and, and like that's what I see with this guy. Like that's what, and I feel like he gets the big hit at the right time and makes the heady play and all of that stuff. That's what I thought we were going to see. I honestly. To be on, to be perfectly honest with you, I thought we were going to see this right away. I really did. Like when they when they signed him to that deal and they said he's gonna he's gonna start the season up here. I said, watch this. You know, like I really thought we were gonna have this guy that we were all gonna be in love with right from the jump. And it hasn't happened that way. I still, if I had to put my money on it, I'd say that that's where we're going. I still think he's going to be that player. But I didn't expect him to struggle like this. And I don't think he probably expected to struggle like this, nor did the Phillies. And I, I think now it's time to maybe look at plan B here, you know, because the the linear progression of, well, he'll just keep getting better and better and better. That hasn't that hasn't played out. No, it hasn't. Well, I want to shift gears on you just for a quick second here and go back to the team. Something that uh, was put out by Sports Info Solutions earlier today. The Phillies rank dead last in baseball in hard hit rate in balls that are hard, the hardest hit balls. They've only in uh, 1,000 coming into tonight's game. This is before, previous to tonight. 1,477 at bats. They hit the ball hard 328 times. That's probably because of mostly all the strikeouts that they have. That hard hit rate is 22.2%. It's the worst in baseball. What do you make of that? I just don't think they're playing Nick Williams enough. <laughs> <laughs> My boy Nick Williams with his opposite field home run tonight. I was Oppo, all excited boppo. for him, and then Aaron Altair came up and, you know. Yeah, oppo boppo. Yeah, I, I really don't know. I mean, do, do you put that on the hitting coach? Do you put that on the personnel that they've constructed in this lineup? I mean, I, I really don't. I don't know what to make of that, and I guess it kind of sounds a little bit weird. You're like, well, you're supposed to have a take on everything. I I really don't. I think that you could attribute that to a lot of things. I mean, is that an approach thing? Is that that just the fact that they don't have the talent that can square up baseballs one through eight in their lineup? Uh, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I I don't know what to make of that. I think that they have a lot of guys in this lineup that have serious flaws in their swing. And I think they have a lot of guys in this lineup that have serious flaws in their approaches. And I think that some of these guys um, either refuse to adapt their approaches or pitchers just know how to exploit them. Um, I like I look at Michael Franco. Like, let's just talk about him because I can't get through a week without talking about Michael Franco. We <laughs> talked about how successful he was against the fastball, right? Well, all of a sudden, if you've really watched them the last week, he's flailing wide open again. Everything's coming out. Pitchers are going soft away, and he probably should have expected that adjustment from pitchers, and he is he's really struggling with it again. And, and now he's back down into, uh, let's, let me just make sure I have this right, he was 0 for 4 tonight with a strikeout, and he's back down to 252 now. And like we were talking about him as this 280, 285 hitter. Well, that average is plummeting. And, and the reason is, is because pitchers are attacking him the same way over and over again. And, and he hasn't made that adjustment. So I look at it like that. Uh, you know, I say, like, I, I think that that's a big problem. I just think the way that they, they go about their bats, maybe outside of Odubel Herrera right now, it, it seems like they don't have a, a complete understanding of how they're being pitched. No, I don't think they do at all. 
And they, hey, Michael Franco batted cleanup tonight, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think you're right. He I don't protected think Odubel Herrera. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> which That's may right. be the greatest testament of Odubel Herrera's numbers <laughs> of all. Um, exactly. Exactly. No, but I, I think that you're right. I don't think that they have a good approach at the plate at all. And, and this is why I'm the one, and I hate to be the Debbie Downer again. I, I just I just keep being this guy, and it's because you're so positive. But, you know, I think they have a bad approach at the plate, as evidenced by this hard hit rate. Another stat that they put out, and I, I couldn't find it. I know I, I tweeted it at you the other day. But the Phillies were dead last in baseball and defensive runs saved. So that tells you their defense isn't good. I mean – how long can you expect the pitching to carry you the way that it has? At some point, there's got to be a little bit of regression uh, from the pitching. I mean, you can't keep having guys pitch, you know, seven shutout innings or allowing just one run in, in 20, as Pavetta's done in the last three starts. Or, you know, you saw what happened yeah, with Nola no you know on Sunday. We had the same conversation a couple weeks ago. And let's, like, let's look at this layer by layer. First of all, let's talk about hard hit rate. Like, do you think that Reese Hoskins is going to hit the ball harder than he has? I, I would imagine so. I hope so. Uh, maybe Odubel Herrera comes down a little bit. But like, well, his bad bip is so high, it's got to come down. Right. Bit, right? And, but, like, Mike Alfranco. I don't know. I, I guess what he has been is what he is. I, I think it's pretty pretty accurate. But like for this whole like narrative of Carlos Santana's resurgence, dude's hitting 186 right now. You know what I mean? Like so, when you look at it, I, I say these guys certainly have the capability to square up baseballs. Like we've seen each of these guys do it, and some of them you would even say have power, uh, which I think is maybe an oversimplification, but. I look at it and I go, it's it's the way that they approach their bats and right now their inability to adapt to how pitchers exploit their weaknesses. And I think that's the biggest reason for the lack of hard-hit baseballs on their end. But when you talk about, well, I think that things are going to come crashing down because of the starting pitching, let's look at that from two different angles. Let's actually first look at the pitching, okay? So do you think that Aaron Nola can continue the pace that he has, that he has set Thus far, um, reasonably so. Mostly, I mean, he's gonna—he's he, not gonna be a below two ERA guy, but I think that you can probably expect him to be somewhere around, you know, two point seven five as your as his ERA, and you know, a whip around right around one, little over one. Um, okay, I, what I about Jake Arrieta? Well, I, th- I think the area. Do you, do you think that like the league can blow off of him and like it's going to turn into a disaster at some point? No, like, I don't think you... it's going to be. No, I don't think it's going to be a disaster. But I also don't think he's going to be as dominant as he once was. I think he's a perfectly fine number two. All right. What about Nick Pavetta? I I like you know. You know I think I he's like the real Pavetta. deal, dude. I really do. Yeah, I I do. I, 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 like I truly truly do. Okay, yeah. uh, Vince Velasquez. Like, does he not continue to give you kind of what he's given you thus far? You know, good start. A good couple innings in a start, one bad inning, but it all kind of just averages out to this like four and a half, five ERA. But he gives you a couple really good starts mixed in. I mean, if he wasn't more of an inning eater, I would be more comfortable with him as a four and a half, five ERA guy. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like if he was giving you more innings. But the fact of the matter is, is I mean, I know he has the last couple games, but when he has a a, a somewhat off night and he's throwing a hundred pitches in four or five innings, and you got to take him out and you go to your bullpen early. Then he has no value. You know what I'm saying? Like I think that's that's where I am with Velasquez. If he could keep if he could keep giving you innings and give you six six or seven every game out, and he's still four and a half ERA, I, you know I can live with that for sure. sure. But I, but a, not, but not if you're burning innings out of the bullpen. No. What about Zach Eflin? 
I still need to see more time from him. I mean, he had two great starts. This last start, I thought he was okay. I thought he was actually okay on Saturday. I think he kind yeah, of boned. I think defensively he didn't get help, and, and then obviously and then the, the weather, rain. four and yeah. two-thirds, and yeah, no, that whole yeah. mess. Um, I did like Gabe Kapler coming out, though, like after after the rain delay went into effect. He was he was all worked up. He was hot. Yeah. He, uh, he was hot. And then the umpire's looking at him like, dude, they're telling us it's going to start raining. And he's like all freaking out. Yeah, he goes into like, the dugout. And, and like, then like 17 seconds later, it starts raining. <laughs> it started but like raining. there I was on Twitter. I was like, you go get him, Gabe. You know, like, I was like, that's my manager. So I was, I was, I was all lathered up watching that. Um, oh, that's funny. I don't know. So, I mean – I guess I, I just look at the starting rotation, and, and to be honest with you, I kind of feel like what they've done, you can reasonably expect them to continue to do. Uh, and if you look at the numbers, I don't think that there's anything crazy. Like I don't think that there's some uh, wild anomaly that, that exists with these guys where you say like they are going to come crashing back to earth. And then from that end, I look at the bullpen, and the bullpen hasn't really been great. You know, I mean, uh, other than what Dominguez has done out of the shoot here, it, obviously Hector Neris has had his struggles. Luis Garcia, we talked about, he stranded a lot of runners, and, and I like him. Uh, Edebre Ramos, fine, you know, decent job. Tommy Hunter struggled. Um, there's nothing out of that bullpen, though, where I go, wow, these guys are really pitching over their, their ability right now and, and expect this to come crashing back to earth as well. Do you agree or disagree with that? No, I agree with that. Oh. I, my my concern though is is that sooner or later the the odds are going to fall against you. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's my one. Well, like concern. on what front? Like so, where are the odds going to fall against them? Because like let's get we'll get to the offense in a second, but let's just focus on the pitching here. Like where where is the regression coming from that's going to cause them to go into a tailspin here? So so I think what happens in a lot of these games is that the pitching has been so good that even if it takes the lineup six innings to finally get started, they're still kind of being pitched the same way because it's a nothing-nothing game or a one-nothing game. They're in the game. And so their hitters are being pitched the same way. So by the so by the you know they're they're forcing the pitchers to throw a lot of pitches. I mean they, obviously the Phillies take a lot of pitches. They control the strike zone, which is pretty good. Um, so they get an opportunity maybe the third time against a pitcher, or even get into the bullpen a little bit earlier than maybe the opposing manager wants. And that's when the Phillies are able to strike and take advantage of um, uh, of of their opportunities and, and get a two to one, three to one lead, and then hope that they can hold on. And that's kind of been you know the season so far when they win. My concern is is that if the pitchers start having a game where they're not bad, but they're not great, kind of like, like how I, Nola, I, was on, Nola was on Sunday, Sunday right? Yeah, right? Like he was the, fine. A, right, a game like that, and then you're you find that all of a sudden the Phillies find themselves behind. 3-1, 4-1, then I don't like this lineup as a come-from-behind lineup. I really don't. I know they've done it a couple times, but I don't like it long-term. Right? Well, I shouldn't say long-term, but I don't like them right right now in this season as they are as a come-from-behind lineup because they, now all of a sudden you're being pitched differently. And, you know, you're sitting there like, all right, well, we'll keep taking these pitches. Well, guess what? Pitchers are going to throw strike one right over the plate. And you're taking it. And now you're fouling off a pitch that's in on your hands. And now all of a sudden it's 0-2 or 1-2. And now it's not a good hitter's count. And now they're, you're, they're being forced to try and do things and come from behind in not in not in good hitter's counts. Whereas in games that are you know tied or one nothing or low score, 
they get better hitters counts more often, and I think that that's when they can finally ultimately take advantage of it. That, to me, is the difference. So if, if there is a slight regression in pitching, that has an adverse effect on the lineup. I mean, I, th- I think that that's fair. I-, I-, I agree with what you're saying. I think that maybe even if the pitching doesn't blow up, that, that there could be some regression just in terms of them not getting, you know, dominant starting pitching, right? I just, w- when I look at regression, I think like, well, who or what group of guys is really truly outperforming what we would expect of them? And, and when I go through this team, I just say, I, I, maybe the starting pitching, maybe Nick Pavetta comes crashing down. He would be one guy I would say, like, there could be some regression. But, like, then when I transfer over to the offensive side of things, I, I look at it and I go, Reese Hoskins was 0 for 4 tonight, and he's hitting 243 right now. Now, listen, the guy's not going to be the National League MVP, and people have predicted him to, to come out and hit 285, 290, and swap 40 home runs. Maybe that was a bit too ambitious. But I just don't think that he is this hitter that he's been over the last three to four weeks, which has been really a below-league average hitter. He's struggled immensely. I just think he's better than that. I would expect, if anything, for him to to kind of go on an upward trajectory. Now, Odubel Herrera, I I love. I I just think he's a flat-out stud. Now, he's hitting three forty eight after tonight. I don't know that that's his final batting average, but I don't think that he's going to just fall off a cliff either. So, like, I look at it and you say, like, maybe Herrera regresses a little bit, Hoskins improves a little bit, but, like, it's still, to me, worst a wash. Mike Alfranco is what he is. Is Carlos Santana, and I know that I know what your thesis is on this. Is he going to hit 186 all year? Probably not. You know, I, I expect to get more out of Nick Williams and, and Aaron Altair in whatever capacity they use either of these guys. I don't think that Nick Williams is a 233 hitter, and I don't think that Aaron Altair is a 202 hitter. You know, I, I feel like that these guys are going to get better as the season goes along, and I just look at how they've performed offensively, and it's been quasi-functional, I suppose. Maybe they're not the dominant force that we kind of dreamt of entering the season, but I don't necessarily see regression. If anything, I think they're going to get a little bit better offensively when I just look at it on an individual basis. And maybe that's looking at it through rose-colored glasses. I don't know. But when I I, I look at what this team has been so far, I say, damn, like, they're not perfect. They're not going to win 100 games. But, like, do they factor in as a playoff contender? Hell yeah. And can they get better at the trade deadline? Hell yeah. And that's kind of what I keep coming back to. And that's fair, and it's. I think it's something we're gonna we're gonna be discussing every week for the next several weeks as we watch this team. And, and you know, it's possible that I'm gonna be wrong. Um, and, and you know, they keep finding a way and keep finding a way. And and maybe that ends up becoming a testament to the manager because maybe that's the kind of culture and and, and uh, you know that he builds in that uh, clubhouse. Um, who knows? Uh, or maybe I'll be right, and I'll be—I won't be happy about it. But maybe I'll be right, and we have to figure out. Okay, something has to change. When we, what's going to change? And then we'll have to talk about that as well. I mean, how so, much I mean, do you how much do you buy into run differential? I, I, I do, I do, and I know it's high for the Phillies right now. And, I mean, it's I not do, Braves I, high. I mean, and that's the thing: yeah. the Braves actually are plus sixty-two after tonight, and they have a half-game lead on the Phillies, who are plus thirty-eight. And the Phillies plus thirty-eight is is outstanding, actually. I mean, it's it's one of the top four, I believe, in the National League right now. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a believer in it. 
you know, but I, I just, I, I look at that and I go, well, that looks good. And if you get into that whole like Pythagorean win loss, you know, predictor, they're, they're right in line with that. It's not like this is supposed to be a 500 team. That's nine games over 500 right now. So like, I just, when I use the word regression, that's, that's just what I look at. And I don't know. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, again, I mean, you know, I, I did pick them to win 85 games this year and that's, you know, so if they win 85, that means that they're going to lose 77. That's eight games over 500. So Right now, they're one game ahead of that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so when I say that I think it's going to regress a little bit, I, it's, I don't think it's going to yeah, regress. Yeah, you don't the expect them to win gonna, 74 games. Yeah. Where they're going to plummet into the bottom of the standings. No, I, but I, I think, think that's fair, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Well, it'll give us a lot to talk about. Well, <laughs> we have, uh, as we do at the end of every episode, um, and I'd I like that we have a, a, a listener who tweeted at us yesterday, and he put, a, he put it in quotes. Um, calling it one last thing, so maybe that's what we should start calling this. One last we'll thing. Yeah. One last thing. Yeah. So like Scott uh, at, Van Pelt's one big thing. Yeah. I know. At one last thing. It's uh, at Rosh D eighty seven, and I don't want to pronounce his last name because I'll I'll screw it up. So Rosh, I just we do appreciate you sending it over. You, do you know um, him by any chance? No, I have no idea who he is. It, it, like, some of these guys, like, on Twitter, like, I just feel like they're, like, long-lost pals. You know what I mean? Like, they, they check in with us, and I'm like, maybe Anthony knows this guy, because I don't. No. But, uh, no, yeah. I have no clue. Very, listener, very right? nice guy. Very eager. It was cool. Yeah, it was cool. I so appreciate he sends it. Us this, he sends us this thing. He says, maybe this is something you can talk about. Uh, one Seems like a good one last thing segment on Crossed Up. And it's all about the Tampa Bay Rays blowing up starting pitching as we know it. And in case anyone's missed it, they started the same pitcher on back-to-back days. They started Sergio Romo um, <laughs> on back-to-back days, who's not even a starter. He's a reliever. Um, if, you, if you recall, he was a closer for the Giants the one year that they won the World Series. Um, but they start him, and the premise is that he pitches one, maybe two innings, and then they take him out, and then they put the starter, who the guy who should be the starter, into the game. And the premise behind this is that, you know, so many people don't want starting pitchers, to face uh, the best hitters in the lineup three times. So if you make a uh, back end of the bullpen relief guy start um, the first inning uh, or first two innings, then the starter comes in. When you get into a high leverage situation like the sixth or seventh inning, hopefully the starter is still in the game, and this is only the second time that the hitters are seeing the starting pitcher as opposed to it being the third time. That's kind of the premise behind it. And it took me back, Bob, to a cool November night when my son, Anthony Jr., was texting me on a Thursday in November. And he sends me a text. I'm going to read you. He sends me a series of texts. I want to read them real quick. He says, I'm looking at the idea of a three-man pitching rotation. Not how you expect it, though. It's Since it's so hard to get a full five-man rotation of reliable starters, what you do is you get two aces and one guy who's like Alex Wood. You then have at least one guy that you call bullpen ace who's capable of throwing 170 innings out of the pen and another one capable of 140, both of whom are good and reliable so that you can pick the most important two innings of a game to throw them. Then you can throw in two fireballers, two lefty specialists that aren't one-dimensional, and then two more relievers that keep the ball on the ground and are control guys. This way you only need 11 pitchers, and you're able to have 14 position players. And he says then the rotation would go like this. Ace number one, Alex Wood guy for three innings in the next game. Ace number two, then bring the Alex Wood guy back for four innings the day after that. 
And then whenever you need to use the fifth spot, you start one of the two bullpen aces and run with the bullpen. No reason to carry a ninth reliever. He says, and this, then he went on to explain that in the same facet as the, if you were using the Phillies rotation. Now, this was before they had Arietta. And I thought, you're out of your mind, kid. Like, what the hell are you talking about? This is ridiculous. And then, well, don't you know, the freaking Tampa Bay Rays try something similar. So, before I decided to weigh in on the ridiculousness of this premise, I decided to go to pick up my son at his house, drag his rear end over to mine, <laughs> and bring him onto our show to explain how this works. So, without further ado, Bob, I'd like to give you Junior. Please take the floor. What an introduction. Jeez. No pressure. Um, so I look at it more so in the way that the first inning uh, historically in the history of baseball is the most offensive inning there is. It's not even – like it's it's kind of close. Like It's like .6 runs scored per inning in the first, which is higher than any other inning. The reason is because it's the only time during the game that you know you're getting one, two, three. You know they're going to get the top of the order – and they're going to be the best players you're facing. So the Rays did it a little differently than how I uh, I tried to piecemeal a three-man rotation, and they went with their own version. And they took Sergio Romo, who got the final out in the 2012 World Series, and started him back-to-back days. And when you're facing a team like the Angels, who can trot out Trout and Upton, maybe Pujols, Kinsler let off the one game, those are some key at-bats there. And that's when teams do their most scoring. So if you can get through those at-bats with your highest quality pitcher, which isn't necessarily Sergio Romo. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't pick him as the guy. But if you can have someone that can get through the first, like, beginning of the order, the top of the order, and get you to the bottom of the order, and then bring in a guy that's not as good to take care of the bottom of the order, like a, like a, like a third or fourth starter like the Angels had, then he can get through that, only have to face the top guys really ideally once. I mean, he was pitching well the other night, so he got six innings. But you only have to face Trout, Kozar, and Upton once. And then you get to your back-end bullpen guys who are more reliable against those guys. By the way, Romo, who faced Trout and Upton both days, struck them both out both times. So let me, let me chime in on this. So this is, this is interesting because my response to, to your uh, proposal would have been the same as your father's, which is, what are you talking about? Um, however, uh, not that I do, but I know some people that have dabbled in sports gambling from time to time. And one of the most popular baseball prop bets that you can make is, will there be a run scored in the first inning? Okay, And, and you go, well, it's quick and easy, and you'll know by the end of the first frame. And um, usually you have to lay a lot of money on the no bet of will there be a run scored in the first inning because you think to yourself, like, well, if you get two good starting pitchers out on the mound, I mean, what the hell, all you got to do is get six outs. But it is a sucker bet, like a lot of bets are. Uh, and, and actually, check this out. So entering yesterday, all right, in aggregate, there had been 791 runs scored in the first inning across baseball this year, which was significantly higher than any other inning. So right off the bat, you make a lot of sense there. Vegas is setting up a prop bet that they're probably going to win because you think how how hard would it be to get six outs without giving up a run up and down the order in the first inning. And number two, the production in the first inning is significantly greater than it is in any other inning, much for the reason, like was said earlier, that it's the only inning that you can guarantee that your three, your, your top three hitters are going to come up to the plate. So it, in a way, though it's not considered high leverage in a sense that the game's outcome is not hanging in the balance in the first inning, it, it kind of can be. 
So it's an interesting premise from that standpoint. Yeah, and well, I mean, you look at the ninth inning is still always going to be the highest leverage situation, no matter who's up in the order. You could have seven, eight, nine up. And you look at what the Dodgers did last year with Kenley Jansen a lot, is they actually didn't throw him in the ninth all the time. They threw him when the two, three, four guys were up generally in the lineup, and which would be the seventh, eighth, or ninth inning, whichever inning it might fall in. And that's really the best way to go about it because you want your best pitcher, who's, in my opinion, the best reliever in baseball, and have him pitch against the best part of the opponent's lineup. And you can get those three outs then and then throw uh, who, someone else that's still reliable against the rest of the lineup. And, yeah, it's still a mental thing. Like, you want someone reliable in the ninth, and you can't just throw Joe Schmo out there. You can't throw someone that's going to get in their head and give up those runs especially in like a one-run game. But if you can get the highest leverage from a pitcher in the highest leverage situations, so with my uh, proposal, I would have a quote-unquote bullpen ace, which is something that is crazy, honestly, to get in Major League Baseball. It's like you would have to convince someone who's a really good pitcher to try to pitch in the bullpen full-time, who's a starter who can go multiple innings and all that, and try to have them for about 60 to 70% of your games, have them come out and pitch the most important inning of the game all the time, maybe two innings, depending on the situation, which is the idea of what a closer is, except you ask them to do more, ask someone who's been a starter and do something like that. So back when, you know, before Vince Velasquez became uh, the, the talk of the town on this uh, podcast, you know, there is there's some <coughs> faith that he could have been the fireball you could have out of the bullpen and someone you can convert. Now, I don't know. I no longer believe in that. But Good. he was a guy that, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think he was a guy that was a perfect contender for something like that because of his situation and his his skill set. He has the hard fastball, and when he can focus on getting a good slider over, he can get a good slider. But he's a head case, as we all know. So it's uh, it's 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 an interesting proposal, I thought, because you don't look at teams that are like the 2011 Phillies, that are like the 2015 Mets, that have these four like aces. And if you have a if you have a rotation like that, forget it. Just do it the normal way. Like you're good. But you look at the best teams in baseball. You don't have that still. Even on the best teams, like the Dodgers, you got Kershaw, and then you got Rich Hill and Kenta Maeda if he ever comes back from injury, and you Darvish if he's reliable ever in postseason well, play. He's on the Cubs now. Oh, well, that's right. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of last year more because so, this is when I thought about this. I, I wrote it out last year. It was in November. Sure yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, but still, like you're looking at, even the best teams nowadays don't have those four aces, those five aces. And rather than trot out uh, a fourth or fifth starter who you already know is all right, he's an all right guy, and have him swallow up 170 innings, why would you have someone who's all right swallow up 170 innings? You got to get the most the most amount of innings to your best pitchers. Well, well I, I think that this else. this is kind of interesting. I think it's kind of revealing about the effectiveness of the plan. So Zach Cozart, who is on the Angels and and was a victim of this was asked about it after after the game, and he says, I don't think that's good for baseball, in my opinion. It's definitely weird not knowing who you're going to face in your first couple of at-bats. Usually you have a starter, and you think you're going to have three at-bats probably, so you're going to use that first at-bat, and you want to have success, see what he has if you haven't faced him before, stuff like that. When you're going spring training style, it's definitely a different ball game. It's spring training. That's the best way I could describe it. I hope it doesn't go in that direction. And I mean, the reason that he hopes it doesn't go in that direction is because it's very hard to prepare and plan and execute against that type of that type of setup. And so I mean I think that that quote there in and of itself kind of reveals the benefit of, of in you know t- 
of doing it. So it, it's kind of interesting. And they, they asked a bunch of different people uh, around the league. And, and, you know, even some relief pitchers said, that's not baseball. You're not benefiting anybody but the actual organization. It's not good for the players. I wouldn't want to pitch on a team like that. Uh, Jesse Chavez, a relief pitcher on the Rangers, had said that. Um, and it's, it's kind of been a controversial thing, but I, I could definitely see that it would be an uncomfortable situation for hitters, especially early in the game. And, and I, I think that shows kind of the legitimacy of the plan, to be, to be honest with you. All right, let me chime in now. I've let, you, I've let you two jokers go at this for 10 minutes, okay? <laughs> All right, here's, here's the thing. All right, let's talk about how in, in, ingenious this idea is. All right, so you get Romo goes in there and he does his job. Okay, gets the gets gets the top of the lineup the first inning. Great. Success. Then your starting pitcher comes in. What if your starting pitcher does not have his best stuff that day? Let's just say. And let's say after three three and a half innings, whatever, he's he's got it, he's done. He's toast, whatever. It's now the fourth inning of the game. And you've got to go to the bullpen. And you've already burned one reliever. Already. Just because you wanted to get the first three outs of the game, because they were so important. The fact of the matter is, is that yes, although runs are scored in the first inning more frequently than any other inning, if you're going to give up a run, wouldn't you rather give it up in the first inning than in a close game later? Like to me, that's, I'd rather sit there and say, okay, you know what? You got to run off of my starter. Fine. We now have eight or nine at bats to get that run back. As opposed to, okay, we got you out in the first inning, but now you touched up our starter for, who's our technically not a starter, but our starter for four runs in three innings, and now we got to chase that, but we have less innings to chase it in. Like, to me, the logic goes completely out the window. And that's why I think this is as dumb as can be. Not because I think it's, it's bad for baseball or it only benefits an organization. Those arguments ring hollow to me. And Zach Kozart complaining rings hollow to me. Dude, you should know every pitcher on the other team that you could potentially face as a hitter. Yeah, who was no also struck out by Sergio Romo there, too. Right. Well, so and that's maybe fine. he was just bitter. Maybe he was. But the fact is, is he should know Sergio Romo because he might face him. All right. It doesn't matter if it's the first inning or the seventh inning or the eighth inning. He should know how Sergio Romo pitches and be ready to bat against him. And so to complain about it, that rings hollow to me as well. Well, it's all just I'll say, sh- all I'll say is this, is that the Rays entered that series against the 25-18 and 18, uh, Los Angeles Angels on the road and won three out of four games, Anthony. So, I, you know, hey, small sample size here, but maybe they're onto something. Do you want to see? Nah, dude, I hate it. I, I'm just, I'm just right. trying to. I'm I was going to say, do you, do you want to see Edubrey nah. Ramos start a game and then bring <laughs> Arietta in in the in the third? Like, yeah, they, they talk about, about like this. baseball and and connecting with the youth. <laughs> Come watch our sixth inning middle reliever pitch the first. Make sure you get to the park on time to watch Luis Garcia. Pitch the yeah, exactly. first and second inning. No, I mean, I'll, I actually will take the route that it's, it's really not good for baseball, um, but it's it's certainly interesting. And if you have a team like the Rays that's, that's somewhat limited, certainly. I mean, say what you will here about this, and, and I don't like it, but the Rays are, I think, a game under 500 right now. I believe they're 22 and 23. And uh, it's certainly unorthodox, but considering what their makeup is, uh, they've, they've had a pretty pretty decent start to this season. 
Um, so, I mean, I don't know. If, for a team that maybe has less talent, that doesn't have those horses that can give you six, seven innings of quality quality baseball, maybe I mean, maybe that's something you look at. I don't know. If I would have told you that there would have been, you know, eight guys lined up beyond the pitcher, uh, you know, on the right side of the field one day, you probably would have said, well, that's stupid. And, and you know, as time's going on, there's – that that's kind of bare. Well, <laughs> I'm probably arguing with the stupid. wrong guy. <laughs> I did say it was stupid last week. Did I say yes, it was stupid yeah, last week? So, okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, I'm probably arguing <laughs> with the wrong guy here, but uh, I don't know, man. I, I think that maybe sometimes these teams just say like, hey, we have a talent gap, we have a payroll gap. These are the things that we can do that may give us some type of advantage because it just makes people uncomfortable more than anything else. You know, it just kind of creates a discomfort for the opponent because they're just not used to seeing it. And I think that that right now might be the biggest benefit of doing it I think it's just teams saying we're progressive we're innovative look at us yeah like if we suck at least we were at least least we we were interesting and and intelligent and we really thought out how we were going to suck well, uh, not working. Why not try something new? Yeah, I mean, Please, yeah, crazy. sure. You got nothing to lose. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's that's the other end of it. Yeah. Who invited you on this thing, yeah, Anthony? I don't know. Where All did right. they get this that's guy? A, I don't know. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with you. I'm done. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for us here uh, tonight. Another episode uh, in the bag here. Um, as always, we want to thank you for tuning in to Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast. I want to thank my son for chiming in these last. 10 minutes of this program. Uh, Bob, we have some other great uh, programs on the uh, Crossing Broad Network. We have the Crossing Broadcast every Monday, Wednesday, and as Russ put it on uh, my show, the other our show the other day, occasionally on Friday. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so occasionally on Friday. Sometimes they're on Friday. I think that's depending on if Kyle wakes up on Friday morning or not. Yo, um, let me ask you something, and because yeah. we're, th- we're running three weeks strong now. Did you go to that union game? I did go to the Union game. I, oh, have I, think to, we, I, I think you need to tell the listeners about the Union game, Anthony. I went the to the Union game. The people want to know. They won 4-1. to one. It was wonderful. It was great. There was a lot of singing the dupe song. A lot of dupe, okay. A lot of um, dupe. Was it more fun than you had anticipated? I was yawning a lot during the game, to uh, be honest So you're you. not uh, the next soccer convert here? No, although I will write something nice about I promised the Union I would write something nice. Okay. And I haven't gotten to it yet, but uh, maybe tomorrow. How's the food down there? Um, it's, I, it's I, functional. I, I didn't even really, you know what, the, you know what, the, here's the, here's something food wise. I didn't eat anything there. We ate beforehand. I took, uh, I, I had took my bosses from DC. They were up for the game and I took them to the game and I, beforehand they wanted to get a sandwich and they were asking for cheesesteaks. I said, I mean, I ain't taking you to get cheesesteak. I took them to Nick's roast beef to get the best sandwich in town. Right. Okay. So we went to Nick's roast beef before we went to the game. So we didn't really eat there, but on the way out, they were. I, I'm walking out of the building, and they are our union employees handing out bread to fans. Like, and I, in, I had a, like just white bread, bread. <laughs> so packages of bread, okay. and it was. I got. I, I swear, it was like those um, uh, those rolls that are not like real full rolls. They're those flatbread kind of things. Okay. And I so so I texted. I I had to find out why this was happening. So I texted somebody who I know works for the union, and they said that their chief sponsor, Bimbo, um, is like the top bread producer in the world. Um, And so what they do is they have a distribution plant in Horsham, PA, and that because they're a chief sponsor, they hand out after every game packages of bread to fans. 
they just give away packages <laughs> of bread. Pretty weird. And I'm saying, or saying to myself, this is the most odd thing that I've ever gotten at a at a sporting event that was handed out to me. They handed me bread. So on the way out, I got bread. Yeah, let it soak up the booze as you're driving home. You know, like I, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So, but no, it's. Oh, it, I will tell that's you, cool. they have that. They have a nice little river deck there that's like looks out over the field and looks out over the Commodore Barry Bridge and the and the uh, Delaware River. So I mean, that's kind. It's kind of a cool environment. Um, but the game itself is just kind of well. Then perhaps you can hop on. It's always soccer in Philadelphia. With Kevin, about that with Kevin Kincaid. Uh, yeah, I, he, I read his. I actually read his union article. It's the first union article I've ever read. Um, and I read and everything I read by it. Kevin. I I didn't read that. Uh, I did. Yeah, I read just, it today, and I was like, you know what? He's for a guy who wasn't at the game. He had a pretty good, pretty good take on exactly what happened. So he's he like was, a union like, authority. Yeah, I you know. know I mean, he's, he's, he he's pretty sharp at the union. It just, I just, yeah. I don't know. I, I just can't do it. I, I, I can't either. I can't either. So the other podcast besides that, another soccer podcast, also on the weekends, is uh, Russ Joy and Phil Kydell doing uh, uh, Crossing Broad FC. They look at uh, European soccer. Like, not that you know we really care about European soccer, but they they do, and they do a great job. I'm sure. I've never listened to a second of it, but hey, I, I love those guys. Uh, I fight with them in our Slack chat all the time. Yeah. Um, Phil, especially. Uh, but Russ and I also, and I this is this is where you know I can be a real hypocrite because Russ and I also host a podcast called Snow the Goalie, all about Flyers hockey. And I know hockey's a niche, uh, niche sport as well in this in in uh, in the United States. So here's me complaining about soccer when I follow a niche sport myself. So, um, but you can tune Go into Golden Knights. Yeah, and it's so such an awesome story. It's such an awesome story that the Golden Knights are in the Stanley Cup final. I heard and from on local sports talk radio today that it's bad uh, for sports, and it shows nah. you that hockey sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 great. It's a great story. It's awesome story. Although game seven tonight between or game six tonight between the Caps and the uh, Lightning went to force the Caps forced a game seven, so they'll play that Wednesday night to see who goes to the Stanley Cup Finals. But anyway, that's for another show, another time. This is a Phillies podcast. We talk only baseball here, uh, and we'll check. We'll be with you again next Tuesday. Uh, so be sure to check us out then. For Bob Wankel at BW Crossing Broad, I am Anthony Sanfilippo at Ant San Philly saying thank you for tuning in.